Happy 2021 to all of you. Uh, 2020 was a rough year, uh, although there's there are some bright spots, which includes this podcast. Yes, forever and always will be we will be able to say that my take with Lawrence Williams is the product of the Rona. <laughs> all in all, I am so grateful to all of you who choose to listen to this podcast. The feedback from all of you has been so encouraging, especially to know that all of you walk away with a piece of knowledge or understanding that you didn't have before. If anything, all of you walk away with a different perspective on the issues, and that gives me joy as well. You can now connect with me via email if you have any questions, comments, concerns, funny stories, or just want to debate. I accept that as well. All at mytakepodcast at outlook.com. That's all one word. This year, we're doing a lot of things different at the My Take Podcast. As you've noticed, I hadn't put on a new episode since, what, last year, a couple of months ago. Um, these things can be a little bit time consuming. So um, what I'm doing now moving forward is putting out a new episode for you at least twice a month. So every other week, so that way you can still stay up on content, um, especially in this format. And in between those, I'll throw in a little interview. Um, so it, it has still been episode, but it'd be an interview about a special topic or uh, something of the sort. And I'll explain a little bit le later uh, in this podcast episode so you get a better understanding of what's going on there. But my take is back for another year, for a new year. And I'm so excited that all of you have chose to join me. Let's get started. Recently, I heard the former mayor of Reading, Pennsylvania, recount some funny stories about his time in office. One, ha one happened while he was running for re-election. He was in a bar, paid for a woman's drink. She thanked him, and but wondered, why would a stranger buy me a beer? And so she asked him. And this mayor who's running for re-election tells this woman who has just bought a beer, I'm running for mayor, he told her. And I want your vote. And she responded, you got it. She grabbed her glass. And as she was walking away, she turns back to him and says, anyone's better than the jerk who's in there now. <laughs> That's a joke from James Landis out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, lady, he's running. <laughs> You'll catch it. If you haven't already, you'll catch it on the way home. But <laughs> I just thought that was <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. And it tells the state of uh, our politics and the political discussion, you know, in the United States and maybe even around the world. But I can only speak for the United States. Um, you know, we always say, you know, everybody hates Congress. Everyone loves their congressman. Um, so the fun question of the day would be. Um, what's your most embarrassing moment? I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of them actually. Well, um, from the story about the bar, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had, um, I believe it was on my birthday or close to my birthday with something like that. I know that we were, um, some friends and I were going to celebrate my birthday. This was probably three, four years ago. Who knows? Who's keeping track? Um, and so they're taking me out to celebrate my birthday at this uh, pretty hot spot. Um, 
and we ended up meeting with some other friends you know some acquaintances that we known from an organization that we were part of and we started to have a, a conversation that of course turned into a political debate about college education and he started to bring up some really good points and of course i was just on the opposite side you know we disagree pretty much uh, politically on most things um and so always staying true to the opposition i started to take a stance that was just not right <laughs> i was trying to think on the fly um how could i make it right essentially um he was saying that um you know organizations and, and institutions let's say like harvard and yale are better uh educational institutions or or they you know have a more rigorous um academic uh, program than other institutions let's say that you know no one really knows about except the local uh, college students who actually attend that university. Um, I was taking the side that the education received at, say, Harvard was no different than the education received at, let's say, uh, my alma mater, Grand Valley. Now, of course, that's not true, right? The education that the Harvard elite, of course, are receiving, um, it, they have more resources, they have more access to mentors, more academic research, things of that sort. Um, and then they specialize in different things, especially in the graduate schools compared to my alma mater of, you know, Grand Valley. Um, and so I took the position that, you know, of course, the two schools were not different, of which in retrospect was pretty dumb. But, you know, I just had to stay true to, you know, who I, and I just don't regret that. I probably would do the same thing over again. I would. Mm -hmm, yeah. No, I, I know. I'm most certain. I'm 100 percent certain I would do the same thing over again because I was not about to lose an argument around my birthday. And I was just I was. I was already there, I had already slipped out. Um, and instead of just saying, you know what, I messed up, you're right, I see, you're right, I'm wrong kind of deal, I just couldn't let him win. If it was anybody else, I probably would have just said, oh, yeah, my bad, I'm so stupid, you know, my bad, moving on. Um, but because it was him, I couldn't let him win in that situation. And because of that, you know, I think that had to be one of the most embarrassing moments for me, especially uh, you know, as a person. People know me to love to engage in debate and political conversations. And um, I pride myself with with doing research. And um, I feel like most people they always say, um, Lawrence, you know so much. And I don't think that I know a lot at all, to be honest with you. Um, I just don't talk about the things I don't know about. So <laughs> when I do talk, it makes it seem as though I know a lot when I, I promise you, there's a lot more that I can learn. There's a lot more that I could study. Um, but I am not ready to talk about it until I feel like I have as much information uh, as I possibly can. Uh, but in that moment, I was just not backing down from him. It was just him. I remind him about that literally to this day, every time my birthday rolls around. And that had to be my one of my most embarrassing moments. So um, to all of you listeners out there, listen, if you're engaged in a political debate or argument or conversation or just it doesn't have to be political, just anything. And you know you are wrong, just 
let it go unless it's that one person. Because everybody got that one person that you just cannot let win. I'm sorry. You just cannot. It's it's almost like, you know, if I saw you at the grocery store and I knew you had to be at your doctor's appointment in five minutes, would I let you cut? No, not you. Everybody else can come. <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> everybody else can come. You know, if I see you outside with your snowblower blowing the 12 feet of snow that fell in front of your house, but you cannot at least offer to help mine, you know, help me with mine. I won't be mad. Mm-mm, not at all. Not at all. I won't feel salty about it. I will go out there and shovel my 12 feet of snow. But, you know, if you know, you need some goods. If I see you at the local supermarket or if I see you at the gas station, would I let everybody else cut in front of me? Absolutely. Just so I can make sure you have to wait as long as possible. It ain't got nothing to do with them or their needs. It has everything that's right to do with you. All because I don't like you. And uh, that's the petty class. That's petty 101 um, of Lawrence Criminal University um, application still being accepted. All right, listen, real life happens, but there's always music. And there's some new music I'm so excited about. Back in November 2020, another Rona creation, I released my first ever music single entitled I Found Someone. It was a smooth groove, lyrically impactful introduction to my EP that has since been released just a few weeks ago. That's right. If you like the song, you will love this EP. You can find it on whatever digital platform you get your music, including YouTube. It's a perfect EP to just sing and relax to, vibe to, and even do a little dancing. All in all, I'm so proud of this project and I know you'll love it. Would you be open to finally listen to something that you can enjoy on your way to work or just chilling with your friends? My EP entitled You, yes, that's just Y-O-U, is sure to be the music experience that sets the groove and have you humming along. Be sure to check that out today. If you're a little old school or just want one for keepsake, I'm willing to send you a CD copy of the project. All you have to do is email me at laurentmmusic at gmail.com. In the subject line, be sure to put your full name and my take 2021. Descriptions uh, or details are in the description. Okay, so now for the real life moment. I want to talk about your strengths. Now, the conventional wisdom is to focus on your weaknesses and improve them, or at least that's what we've always heard, right? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't give time to those areas of improvement and work on them. I'll talk more about this in the future. Right now, though, and most of your time this year and forever, focus on your strengths. It's your strengths, what you do best, or the best environments conducive to your growth that make your brand. Case in point, if you break your leg, God forbid, and need surgery, you don't go to the hospital and ask for the head doctor. Not that the head doctor couldn't help you in some way, but more so because the head doctor's strength and expertise is, well, your head. Instead, you want to see a doctor who has the most experience and expertise in the area you have a problem in. In this regard, how you approach the world and the talents of others is how you will be approached in return. I think that's so good I said it again. In this regard, how you approach the world and the talents of others is how you will be approached in return. By focusing on your strengths and building on that and gaining more expertise, you will simply enhance your brand and set yourself apart from others. So this week, I want you to evaluate yourself. What are some of your strengths? Some of the things you do best? 
And then this week and every week of this year, I want you to spend time exercising that strength. Like muscles in the gym, break it down. What makes you so good? Why do people like it? Even talk to some close friends or fans. You cannot effectively grow without self-awareness. And then find ways to make it better. It could be reading a book, connecting with a mentor, watching YouTube videos, or just making time to actually do the thing or things you do best. Practice certainly helps. And that's a real life moment this week. We are going to tackle this year, regardless of what we did last year. So it's a new year and a lot of new things are happening, politically speaking. One of the things that I'm excited about is the likelihood for progressional causes and issues like criminal justice reform, education, and even some foreign policy and world affairs shakeup. As a side note, I'm going to be bringing you some news from around the world on this podcast every so often, not only because I find it extremely interesting, but because I think it's important to know what's happening in the world, as it is a constant reminder to us that the world is much bigger than we have made it to be. But first, back home in the States, we've got a lot to grapple with. Uh, the political parties, which don't seem to be working for us right now, are dealing with inter-party fighting and disagreements that are making the conversation between the two parties almost non-existent. But there are some credible points. There are more outrageous examples of stories of what not to do if you're a governing party or a party trying to take power. Now, fair warning to all sides, none of you are about to be happy with this segment. <laughs> I'm going to start with the liberals. Well, there was definitely not a blue wave last November. It was indeed a blue splash, big enough to maintain the majority in one chamber of Congress, take over the other chamber and win the White House. Democrats are ushering in a bunch of firsts that we can all be proud of. First female in person of color to be vice president, sworn in by none other than the first Latina to the U.S. Supreme Court, first Latino senator from California, first Jewish from Georgia, and first black man elected from Georgia. We also have the first female to lead the nation's national intelligence apparatus, the first Latino to be nominated to lead the Department of Homeland Security, uh, and I can go on and on. And all of this progress, especially in the spirit of racial equity, is good. I don't want to move on without acknowledging that these are breakthroughs. These are indeed important decisions that will change the way children of color in the United States view their government. As has always been said, representation matters. But here's where you're going to go wrong. First, I'm all with the ambition and ambitious proposals. Um, I think it's a good thing. However, I don't believe that it's wise to act as if the people who voted for you in 2020 actually like you. <laughs> I'm sorry, they don't. They simply hated the other guy more. The Democratic Party has to come with grips with the more liberal wing of the party. By the way, when I say come to grips, I don't mean to silence them. The worst part about party establishment is that they're so busy trying to silence the further left that their own plans are failing to address what they set out to address in the first place causing a backlash within the party of which we call the far left. And the more progressive wing of the party are not naive. They just have no idea how to message, win, and govern. <laughs> uh, for the more progressive wing, you know, if you want the reforms you think are going to be successful, you have to win hearts, not just arguments. Screaming Black Lives Matter and defund the police is not going to stop one black or brown body from being unjustly killed at the hands of police or a reappropriation of police resources of which it can support resources which allow the police to keep the streets safe instead of responding to calls when the next fam black family decides to have a cookout 
in a public park. What we do on immigration, criminal justice reform, climate change, and everything else must be practical and realistic. And you can't act as if your opinion is the only opinion in the room that matters. Also, we want the virus to be over with. I'm just saying, we want it to be done with, send our kids back to school and be able to go to a restaurant at some point this year, um, you know, this month, this week, just please, before we all die, um, anything you got to say that ain't got nothing to do with either our chicks or the vaccine so we can go make our own money are not things we really care to hear right now, including impeachment. Yes, I said it. Yes, we want to hold people accountable. After we get relief for this coronavirus, I just honestly don't understand how we're going through impeachment when people can't pay their rent. Kids are not back in person in some places, uh, in school, which hurts single mothers in poor communities more so than others. Even if the guy should be impeached, and most Americans think so, I certainly think so, the guy is gone. Let him leave. Go enjoy retirement. And when people get uh, you know, back to business and, um, and the relief that they need to make it through the last leg of the pandemic, then we can circle back if we still feel like it. Uh, moving on to the conservatives, boy, do I have a lot. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Uh, help me, Jesus. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, what what happened? Um, <laughs> I almost want to say, you know, what in the tarnations is? <laughs> I mean, come on. Okay, look, I'm not saying that anyone, including 45, knew these, you know, insurrectionists would break into the Capitol by force. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Trump lost the election in November. He then went on the rampage convincing some conservatives that he actually won and the election was stolen, claims of which were overwhelmingly rejected by even his own appointed judges, and that January 6th was the day in which Pence and the Congress would somehow come to know the truth about what really happened and Trump would be president for another term. And I heard some talking heads on the news. Uh, the general talking point is, well, you know, people are fired up. Um, yeah, because you lie to them. They believed you. And when you uh, when what you claim didn't come to pass, you channeled that anger at the opposition to divert them from believing that you're a liar. And I'll get to some policy in a second. But this is my yelling voice. So hear me clearly. This is me nicely yelling at you. Because, you know, I, I love you. I actually like you, you know, and, and most of you are really good people. But folks, my brothers and sisters, sir, ma'am, ma'am, sir, you lied. You told us there was massive voter fraud, fraud you alleged in press conferences, but did not allege in court. Lies like ten thousand, tens of thousands of dead and incarcerated voters in Georgia uh, voted in election ran by your own people, fellow Republicans, loyal to your party. You allow them to be picked apart by 45 and threatened with death by his supporters in an effort to do what? Save him from admitting his own defeat? Republicans used to stand for something, something like, uh, say, the Constitution and party principles. In every midterm election, we could depend on Republicans to stick together, not because of one person, but because of the shared beliefs and the value of the country, its institutions, and safeguarding the republic. How in the whole hell and the heavens do we allow one guy, one freaking guy, to destroy at worst, make us forget at best what we're all about?
Republicans revere dead men. They do not succumb to the charisma of one living one. Republicans will call you out when you're wrong and cut off the hand to save the arm if they feel a threat to the party apparatus is coming. What happened? What happened when we refused to call out a guy who incited a riot at best and refused to call in the National Guard to save his own vice president from being hanged at worst? I laugh to keep from crying because this is like, why do we even have to discuss? It's like, come on now. It's just, it's great. Unfortunately, I think I know the answer. And it's one that the party is going to have to struggle with for a while. That is, we thought the fanatics, the people who would rather destroy democracy in an effort to maintain power, were a small, a very small sliver of Americans, a very small part of the political process. Unfortunately, throughout all of us, we found out that there's a lot more of them than we polled, talked to, reported on, accounted for, or even begged to vote. Until we come to terms with this, it's hard to talk about protecting the sanctity of life, our Second Amendment rights, or even our exploding and very dangerous national debt. This is something that the Republican Party is going to have to focus on. It's going to have to grapple with. And in the days after Trump, if that actually exists, I'm curious to see how this shakes up how this happened. The leader of the Republicans in the House went to visit um, the former president down in Mar-a-Lago, while there are increasing calls to expel one of its own members um, for some races and some all kind of posts that that she did, that, that she liked, that she shared, that she commented on, including wanting to execute leaders of the Democratic Party. So Republicans got their stuff going on that they need to look, figure out, sit down, kumbaya, come to Jesus. And the Democrats most certainly have their stuff going on. I think the interesting thing about the Democratic Party now is that now that it's in power, what we're going to see is the exposing of the intra-party fighting. We're going to see, because Trump is gone, right? There is no longer a common enemy um, for the Democratic Party. And when there is no common enemy, when there is no outside force that everybody can rally around, they do what people do best, and that is turn on themselves. So I'll be interested to see what kind of policy decisions that we get out of this from the coronavirus fight to you know economic policies, climate policies, criminal justice reform. How, how do we start shaping those policies to be relevant, especially for where we are now and where the Democratic Party claims it wants to take us, um, while also having to grapple with this own inter-party uh, disagreements and fightings, which is, are not wrong. I want everybody out there to understand that. Inter-party fighting is not wrong. It is a difference of ideas. And just because you belong to a political party or you subscribe to a political party does not mean that you agree with every single thing every other member of that political party does or says or believes. Uh, but when you are in power, there is a different undertone, especially now, um, where the Democrats' power, it's actually very limited. It's, it's like, you know, uh, they're literally hanging on to power by a, shri a string. Um, they could lose one Senate seat 
and that party control in the in the Senate is flipped back to the Republicans. If they lose just a handful of House seats, um, the power in the in the House goes back to Republicans. Uh, in November, um, you know, Biden may have won the presidency. Um, but Republicans won. <laughs> November was a good month for Republicans um, up and down the balance. Trump lost, Republicans won. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see how the Democrats are able to govern, knowing that the, the, that the country is so divided. Um, we are still put in our partisan corners um, and there are still things that need to happen, need to get done. And you've got to be able to bring people together. So I'll be interested to see, and I'll definitely be keeping you all up to date on what's going on in Washington as we go along. So as mentioned before, foreign policy is something I definitely want to start bringing to you guys. Um, today, I will start with the soft but hard topic, uh, like the Iran nuclear deal. That's the simple name, but it's not really a name uh, for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or JCPOA. The Biden administration between signing executive orders has the Secretary of State and Tony Blinken. Now, he has an oppressive international relations career and he has the political appointment that's not really, though. Anyways, one of the things the administration would like to address is the Iran nuclear deal. The administration is prepared to offer concessions on sanctions that were imposed by the Trump administration if the Iranians agreed to abide by the terms of the agreement. Uh, as a backdrop, the Obama administration brokered the deal with world leaders and Iran in an effort to combat Iran's nuclear production. The deal called for things like limits on centrifuges and open access to international agencies. And I won't get too much into boring details because, you know, I actually want you to listen to my podcast and not fall asleep as if this is U.S. history. <laughs> but basically, the idea was that it would be harder to combat Iran and protect our Israeli allies against a nuclear Iran. Iran has ballistic missiles, quite frankly, who doesn't? <laughs> uh, the U.S., of course, along with Israel alone, outmatch both the number and effectiveness of Iranian military technology. The deal also dealt with Iran's finances, though, uh, but with a caveat. While Iran could begin or resume in some cases trade with other nations, it would not have access to the American dollar or U.S. banks. And the U.S. held the sanctions provision on banks who did do business with Iran. So basically, the U.S. said, you can trade and make money again as long as it's not our dollar and you can't use our banks or any bank that does business in the U.S. to do so. Oh, you also cannot use American ships, planes or trains to do so. Economic sanctions for years had finally drove the Iranians to the table. This was the perfect time to crack a deal. The intent of the deal was not to stop Iran from being the largest sponsor of terrorism. Again, the intent of the deal was not to stop Iran from being the largest sponsor of terrorism. The deal was not intended to stop Iran from growing its economy. The deal was singularly, for better or worse, meant to prevent Iran from attaining a nuclear weapon. When the U.S. pulled out of the deal during the Trump administration after the restrictions had already been lifted in accordance with the deal and the Iranians were complying and abiding by its terms, 
it caused a firestorm. For one, our allies who had re-engaged with the round on trade had to decide whether or not to continue to boost their economies with a new trading partner, especially at a time where the U.S. was no longer a reliable trading partner, or face the prospects of U.S. economic sanctions and, of course, angering a very powerful ally on the world stage. Then with no deal, Iran could very well choose to create a nuke as opposed to boosting its economy or find other ways to boost its economy with all these new partners he had just made while also building a nuke. And without the deal, it would be harder for the U.S., for instance, to hold Iran accountable and look justified doing so because there's nothing in writing. Basically, the U.S. was going to have to make its case on the world stage based on Iran's failure to meet the U.S.'s expectations rather than Iran's failure to meet the terms of a signed agreement. Now, in defense of the Trump administration, the whole idea was that with the rescission of the deal, um, you know, that will cause the sanctions to snap back, which then would either cause the recollapse of the Iranian economy or the fear of collapse, either of which are great and would have brought the Iranians back to the table for what the Trump administration, I'm sure, would have labeled a better deal. And I use air quotes when I say that. However, it backfired. All other nations, including NATO partner France, stayed in the agreement with Iran. Maybe due in part because the Trump administration did not consult allies or adversaries before making the decision. <laughs> France had open relations with Iran and had begun trading and refused to back out of out of a deal. American intelligence were telling the French and the American president that Iran was abiding by. So the new secretary of state is committed to re-engaging Iranians, but is very careful to explain, at least in this confirmation hearing, that we must wait to see if the Iranians will go back to abiding by the terms of the agreement, of which they stopped abiding by because they chose to just boost their economy with other trading partners and build their bomb before we agree to ease sanctions. The issue here now, though, is that the Iranians have no incentives to do so. One thing that always remained in U.S. foreign policy stands through administrations. Um, and one notable uh, is when Obama, for instance, ran uh, to pull out the troops in Afghanistan once elected, then sent more troops overseas after he was inaugurated. To the Americans, he broke a campaign prom promise, at least at the time. Um, troops were later withdrawn, but not without having to hear about the decision for a few years. Anyways, long story. To the Afghans, though, the U.S. had fulfilled its promise as President Bush in his final days promised a surge of troops in the last ditch effort to defeat a resurging Taliban. The world knew and understood that no matter who the president was, the U.S. would live by its word on the world stage. The events with the Iran nuclear deal were sadly one of the first times in a long time it didn't. So for the Iranians and the Kurds who we abandoned, and maybe I'll talk about that another time, why should Iran trust America to uphold a deal past its current president? It would be much easier to write out this administration and hope that a more favorable one, one who disagrees with the JCPOA, will come along in four years or eight or however long. Presidencies end after all. Monarchies, not so much. And that's my take. Next time, I want to take you around the world to Great Britain, where the Brexit deal is in play this year after tumultuous and very uncertain four years. It's going to be a great conversation. Mm -hmm.
there's some good things happening this season with my take podcast. One of them I'm excited about is my interview with Pastor Mick Veach of Kentwood Community Church in Kentwood, Michigan, just south of Grand Rapids, about the churches, and that is the Big C or Global Church uh, role in rec- racial reconciliation and relations. I promise you, even if you are not a believer, and we know that this is not a Christian podcast, you will still want to listen to this conversation, at the very least, to get a different perspective. Racial reconciliation and equity, education reform, criminal justice reform, climate change, the right to life, you name it. We're going to be having the discussion, getting a better understanding of the topics and cracking jokes the whole time. I'll be interviewing some thought leaders in the community regarding the range of topics, and you'll be able to engage in the discussion as well. I promise you, it's going to be an amazing time. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast or follow wherever you get your podcast so you stay up to date whenever I post a new episode. Be sure to check out the links in the description as well for contact information and links. Until next time, stay safe, don't get the Rona, and be sure to focus on your strengths. Have a good week.